Yeah, I asked you before the break uh, to let me know about fraud, because it turns out that fraud, declared cases of fraud in this country, are jumping. They're way up. Let me know, 877-399-9898, 877-399-9898. How often do you feel like people try to defraud you? I feel like I probably get maybe something along the lines of 10 to 15 things a week that are probably fishing expeditions for fraud, whether it be alarms about things I owe or any number of things. You know, your UPS package hasn't been delivered. Check your Netflix account here. All those things where you're sort of being lured into trying to give up personal information. Um, and you have to be diligent because oftentimes you kind of, you know, your life is moving by fast. You read them quickly. You always check the email address, always check the phone number, see if they're legit. You know, um, have a quick look at the resources out there that are available from the Canadian Anti-Fraud Center, for instance, about what uh, you need to do to protect yourself. Um, we also know that only a small fraction of fraud cases and losses are actually reported to police, just 5 to 10%. With that, Canadians declared close to $400 million in losses to the Canadian Anti-Fraud Center in 2021. That's a 130% increase over the previous year, and it is a record for this country. To make matters worse, money lost to fraud is usually gone for good. Only 1% of that nearly $400 billion was recovered. So given how much fraud costs all of us, given that we're in a time where most of us are having to tighten our belts because of the high cost of everything, why is it more being done to fight fraud? One retired RCMP fraud officer is calling for an overhaul of how authorities combat the crime. And John Meacher, a former RCMP fraud investigator, joins me now. Thank you for your time tonight. Happy to be here. Um, I would know that someone in your position would not use a term like off the charts uh, easily, but that's how you've described what's happening with fraud in this country. Uh, how much of a change have we seen of late? Okay, so last year, and the stats I'm referring come from the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre. Mm -hmm. And they are the, in the best play position to tell us, the, provide us a clear indication of what's going on in the fraud world. Last year, and when I say off the charts, it was almost $400 million, uh, that they had reported at the Anti-Fraud Centre. And that's been going up and up and up year after year. Going back 10 years ago, it would have been a fraction of that. But the thing that makes... 400 million, even more disturbing, is that according to the best estimates from the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre, that number, 400 million, only represents less than 5% of the actual frauds reported to them. So we are looking at a situation in Canada, which is a multi-billion dollar fraud industry. So yes, it is a problem. And $400 million in losses, as you mentioned, so few of these fraud cases are actually reported. Uh, what's behind it? I mean, I know just personally, uh, with just on my own cell phone number, I get, you know, maybe 15, 20 fishing expeditions a week. Um, what's going on out there that, that could account for this incredible growth in the amount of uh, fraud going on? Okay. Well, some people believe it may be pandemic related because then you'd have more people at home more accessible to the phone so on and so forth um that might be one reason but i also believe that criminal organizations around the world and within canada are realizing that fraud is incredibly profitable 
especially in Canada where it, it's low risk, high reward. And when we look at how they do it, and, and you gave a perfect example, you're getting so many attempts on your own phone. It costs the fraudsters almost next to nothing uh, to do that sort of engagement. And it's a numbers game. The more times they send out their message, their email, make their phone call, the greater the chance they will find that vulnerable person who will fall for that scam. And when I mention vulnerable people, I, I want to make this clear that there's three technically four different groups of vulnerable people. One at the top of the list are seniors. Then following that we have newcomers, which includes refugees, as well as our intellectually challenged communities. But the fourth group, which actually surprises a lot of people, can include just about anybody else given the right set of circumstances. And personally, I've dealt with victims of fraud who cover the top three groups, but I also have dealt with victims who come from backgrounds such as being lawyers, politicians, police officers, accountants, retired judges, and maybe shockingly enough, bankers and ex-bankers. So when we think about who could be vulnerable, it basically represents everybody. Uh, you, I mean, I guess in this sense, there is a lot of fish in the sea and uh, fraudsters have all the time in the world and, and all the different methods they can come up with to try to lure them into. And it just takes one, right? It, it, you don't need to be successful uh, 100% of the time. You need to be successful maybe uh, a fraction of a percentage of the time. You're still making money. Yes, absolutely. And I have dealt with fraudsters before. Some of who I would call like the McDonald's, the fraudsters, no offense to McDonald's, but it's just their business model. Basically, they had a lower uh, end of what they want to get from the victims. It would often fall in the range of like 2,500 or so. But then through your, what I call your high-end fraudsters, and this is not a compliment towards the fraudsters, just that they crafted their particular message to an audience that were able to afford more. And I dealt with victims, online frauds, where victims have lost million up to $5 million. So again, just about anybody can fall for a fraud given the right circumstances. I know that we talk a lot about the cyber aspect of this, but you mentioned it earlier, uh, the good old fashioned telephone is still a tool that fraudsters use quite effectively. Yes. And although based on dollar numbers lost, the telephone isn't uh, connected to the highest dollar losses, but at the same time, and we can't discount the power of the phone, at the same time, the phone is still the preferred method of solicitation for fraudsters targeting Canadians. We also know from the same statistics that very little of what is lost is ever recovered. Absolutely. And that losses can vary from a couple hundred dollars up to millions. And depending on the person's financial status, some people can recover, but there's most people can't. And can you imagine a, a senior citizen or somebody approaching their retirement years? And we saw this again and again with the CRA scam. The fraudsters would keep coming back to the victim again, again, and again. And I'm aware of several victims who end up depleting their RRSP accounts just to hand over, in some cases, $100,000 to $200,000 over to the fraudsters. So now we have a senior person who was relying on that 
on the savings is now gone. And what are they going to do? And the psychology of this, I'm sure you understand as well. I suspect that once someone has fallen victim to something, it's very hard to convince them to stop. Uh, harder than you would imagine. Yes. And some frauds are easier to convince. Like with the CRA scam, for instance, we would have often inter interaction with victims or potential victims. And it'd be relatively straightforward to put them straight if we were able to engage them soon enough. But with scams like investment scams, where people just become one of my former uh, colleagues used to be called them the true believers. Once they started believing that they were going to get that massive payoff at the end of the day, it was sometimes next to impossible to convince them until finally, two years later, they didn't see their promised returns coming in. But the most challenging group out there as far as victims are people who fall for romance scams. Right. I've dealt with victims. One particular lady, she was like 81 years old. I could tell you this story in great detail if you want, but she came up here from the States. American authorities tried to engage her. She came up to Canada to mule $26,000 over to the fraudsters in Canada, supposedly to get to her pretend boyfriend in Germany. And my interaction with her, she was totally groomed and brainwashed by the fraudsters that no matter what I said to her, I had no luck whatsoever convincing her that she was actually dealing with bad people. Uh, and the thing that makes that even more devastating is at some point or another, uh, she's going to get to the point where she's sold all of her assets because she already has sold her $400,000 home. At some point, she's going to throw away all of her assets and she's going to wake up one day. She's going to be broke with a broken heart and the emotional impact on victims, unfortunately, can lead to depression, attempts of suicide, and people actually taking their lives. And unfortunately, with romance scams, that seems to be, I'm not going to call it a trend, but it happens a whole lot more often than I'd ever like to see. John, you've mentioned this, you've been in front of committees talking about this. What needs to be done to at least try to stem the tide of this? Because it feels like if it's growing exponentially, clearly, authorities just aren't doing enough to stop it. I agree 100%. And when I was in front of the House of Commons Committee, I, I actually stated that, and because I come from the RCMP, and let me make this clear, I loved my time in the RCMP. I had nothing but the greatest respect for the people who were doing the investigations, but there's a disconnect between those who are doing the work and those who are actually controlling the purse strings, uh, i.e. high management in Ottawa. I don't see that management of the RCMP or by extension, the federal government sees fraud or fraud awareness as a priority. And unfortunately, until we wrap our head around that, we're going to continue to see these losses. But if I had the ear of a fraud czar, which we don't have, I would say there's at least four different approaches that we have to be relentless with, starting with criminal investigations, even though at some point, and, and I can say this as a former fraud investigator, going to court in Canada regarding fraud is almost pointless, except we have to do those investigations. We have to try to get convictions. If for no other reason, even if the bad people don't go to jail, they should still have that conviction because that conviction can impact on what they want to do further on in life, whether it's getting certain jobs or even crossing certain borders. 
And something that is rarely ever talked about, I know that when I was in the RCMP, there were two things you didn't do. You didn't talk ill of the government and you didn't talk ill of the courts. But the courts were a constant frustration for me because I'll give you one quick little example. My first um, online scam that I was involved in, it revolved around a refugee who came to Canada trying to find safe harbor and he fell for a scam. Over $40,000 later, we actually end up catching one of the guys. It, it was a conspiracy, so there were multiple different people involved in the fraud. But we caught one of them. So for a $40,000-plus scam, the guy's penalty, 200 hours community service. And tell me in what world that makes sense. So when we talk about what should we should be doing, one thing that we should be doing is having greater transparency as far as outcome of courts. And I would like to see a public, easily accessible public database that would allow anybody, be it broadcasters, journalists, whatever, or, or, or average citizens, able to go on there and see what sentences are being given fraudsters, and more importantly, how much that sentence is actually applied. And I use that particular terminology, separating between the sentence given versus what is actually served because one of the most egregious examples happened out in Alberta a couple of years ago where you had two guys, two very bad people, they were running one of the Canada's, if not Canada's largest Ponzi scheme. And their take on that alone was somewhere between 100 to $400 million. That's completely off the charts. And those particular scams aren't reported to the Canadian Anti-Fraud Center because it's not online or phone related. But how much you one would think those two guys, if they pulled in even a hundred million, I, I hope I said a hundred million, it's a hundred million to four hundred million. So if those guys don't go to jail for an extended period of time in regarding to fraud, who will? Anyway, they were given a sentence of 12 years, but this is Canada. They actually got out about two years. They were out in parole at roughly two years, which in my mind. That makes no sense, and it doesn't show any respect to the justice system nor to the victims. If you're out there now and you're speaking to people who may may be vulnerable to this, what are the, some of the very key words of advice you can give them in a few minutes about how to better protect themselves these days? Be a doubting Thomas. If anybody sends you an email uh, or a message, social media message or a phone call, and they're asking for either money or your personal information, because a lot of the scams rely on getting information to execute an identity fraud, be very doubtful. If you are a part of a, a community where you're maybe overly trusting, have an agreement with a friend, and you're going to say, if, any, if I'm ever going to give somebody money, I'm going to give you a call first before I do, just to have that separation between the initial call and the opportunity provided to the fraudster. And it can also go to as simple things as other people who might be listening to this. Everybody within their community, within their circle of friends or family will generally have vulnerable people, whether it's seniors, newcomers, what have you. It's extremely important to have personalized fraud chats around the dinner table. Uh, like, and I drive my friends and family nuts because I'll, I'll be bringing this up with total strangers. Anytime we have somebody over for dinner, I'll be bringing this topic up, but I'm doing my part because I know that grassroots engagement can be beneficial, but 
that type of engagement has to be encouraged at a, a much higher level beyond my particular soapbox. Yeah, I, I mean, I think think what we information is power, right? And and often these things happen in a vacuum. And and I could see why you know even just getting this the the fishing expeditions that I receive, you know, they are calls to action. They do play on your emotions. They are very crafty in their simplicity. And I can imagine that once you've fallen victim to one, it's very hard to figure out. You know, it's they set off an alarm bell in you, and you react to that. Yes. And one thing I, I missed on, so I, I said, uh, a, a huge red flag is anytime somebody's asking for money or your personal information. But there are also frauds out there where the ask for money doesn't happen right away. I've dealt with investment scams where the actual ask for money didn't come until months after the initial engagement, at which point the victim has already psychologically bought into the promise of becoming rich, even without offering, putting any money forward. And it also speaks to uh, the, the evilness of the romance scams. So they'll ensure that they've established the relationship with the victim. And then it'll be at some point later, the ask for money will flow. John Meacher, we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for your advice. It is certainly an important topic. Hopefully we can uh, all work together to bring some of those numbers down. I appreciate it. Thank you.